Our second scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, verses 19 through 31, reading from the Common English Bible Translation. Listen now for God's word to us. It was still the first day of the week. That evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Thomas, the one called Didymus, or the twin, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in the wounds left by the nails and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, his disciples were again in a house and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied, do you believe because you see me? Happier those who don't see and yet believe. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll, but these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So John's cards are on the table here, right? The author of the fourth gospel is pulling no punches and telling us what he's all about, what this book is really after. It's belief. These things are written, he says, so that you will believe. So, if you thought sitting there that you were listening to a carefully researched and documented biography or a, an objective news story, I have some bad news for you. That's not what this is. John's left some things out. He admits it. He says Jesus did many other signs, signs that aren't recorded here. And what's worse, he admits that the things that he kept in serve his agenda of getting you to believe in this Jesus that he's talking about. He's writing a gospel. And a gospel is a particular kind of book that follows its own conventions. And those conventions can seem strange, even offensive, to those of us raised to privilege the perspective of the disinterested third-party bystander. So John says, you can have your disinterested third-party bystander. Now let me tell you about Jesus. It's not the only way you can do that, right? That's not the only option for a gospel writer. We spent all of Lent reading from Luke 
here. So here's how Luke begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those from, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Luke, I investigated everything carefully from the first. John, eh, I left some things out. Luke, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. John, so you'll believe. So I'm just warning you now, here at the beginning of the sermon, even though John leaves it to the end of the gospel, this is about belief. And make no mistake, that's a good thing. Belief is a good thing. Maybe even the best thing. The last word from Jesus in this story is about belief. It's this little beatitude, the text of which was the anthem that we just heard. Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. Belief is a good thing. What do you believe in, though you can't see it? Do you believe in the power of love? Do you believe in democracy? Do you believe that this is the Cubs' year? <laughs> do you believe in God? Or do you need to see in order to believe? Are you an adherent of that uh, old saying of Ben Franklin's, believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. We all believe things we can't see. You can't avoid that. Can you see your emotions? Do you believe they're real? Can you see with your eyes the bonds that you have with the people who are most important to you, your parents, your friends, your family? Do you believe those bonds are real and do they affect the decisions that you make? Can you see the future? Do you believe in it? It's an important note here that for the first hearers of this gospel, believing what you see, and that whole question is more than just a philosophical exercise. You see, the days are getting on since the days of the events that the gospel is describing, and the people who were eyewitnesses to those events are dying off. It's something of a crisis for the early church. What is the basis of the church's claims about Jesus if not the testimony of eyewitnesses, of people who were actually there? Well, welcome to our world, right? What proof do any of us have that these signs and wonders happen the way that the Gospels say that they did? None. We don't have any. I mean, the Gospels differ among themselves in how they describe these stories. A cartoonist has had a little bit of fun with this fact. He draws a picture of Jesus about to break the bread and feed the 5,000, but he stops first and looks at all of the disciples and says to them, now pay careful attention or else we're going to end up with four different versions of this miracle. <laughs> four different versions doesn't bother me. I don't think it should bother you either because the most powerful stories... The most powerful stories that we have are the ones that don't depend for their believability on things that you can 
see with your own eyes and pin down on your board of facts. Happy are those who don't see and yet believe, says Jesus, and also anyone who has ever felt the power of a good story. Now, it might sound like I'm promoting ignorance. I'm not. Believing in a thing that you can't see is not the same thing as believing in something that is demonstrably false or persisting in a wrong belief despite ample evidence to the contrary. That's ignorance. Ignorance is willful. Belief, or faith, as we talked about on our recent retreat with the 8th grade confirmation class, that's a gift. We spent some time on that retreat discussing a question from one of the church's old catechism. If you don't know what a catechism is, it's a question and answer presentation of Christian belief. And back in the day, that's how you did confirmation. You memorized all 129 questions and answers of the catechism. Raise your hand if you want to do that. So we spent some time with one of them that asked this question, what is true faith? And this is the answer that that catechism gives. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel. Trust that God has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. That's a lot of fancy theological language. Let me condense it a little. Belief is trust which the Holy Spirit creates in us. It's, it's a gift more than a decision or effort that we make. Makes me think about that story in one of the other Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, about a man who pleads with Jesus to heal his tormented son, to whom Jesus utters this almost insensitive little quip, all things can be done for the one who believes. I believe, that desperate man says in response, but he adds, help my unbelief. And so Jesus did, because belief is, is a gift. And anywhere there is belief, there will be doubt. So enter Doubting Thomas. Thomas wasn't there the evening of that first day of the week. Thomas didn't see the things the other disciples got to see. So the disciples tell him about it, and they keep telling him about it, but his answer doesn't ever change unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in the wounds left by the nails and put my own hand into his side. I won't believe. He's called Doubting Thomas for a reason. Like some who have gone before Thomas, he doubts the metaphysics of what Jesus is up to. He wants to see it for himself. He wants to see for himself the phenomenon that's being described to him, to get his hands inside of it, to feel around it a little bit until he can grasp it for himself. He doesn't want to be taken in by unsubstantiated claims. Do you get that? I certainly get that. It was April Fool's Day earlier this week, and I got fooled. That never happens. <laughs> the world is full of hoaxes. Emails from Nigerian princes about fortunes awaiting you. 
Dr. Oz with his belly fat busters and anti-aging tricks. You better not open every email that comes to your inbox promising health, wealth, and who knows whatever else. Doubt in our day and age is not only wise, it is critical. So I appreciate doubt. I appreciate Thomas's doubt. Doubt is also personal, though, and here's where Thomas's doubt becomes a problem for the church. Thomas doubts the testimony of his friends. They tell him, we've seen the Lord. That's like the founding announcement of the church. And it's, it's coming from the mouths of Thomas's own people, the people he knows better than anyone else, not some milk crate street preacher. He knows them, but he can't believe them. And that's a problem. These are his closest friends, the people who have traveled this grinding, lonely road with him, the ones he himself led to follow Jesus when he thought they were marching to their death. They're the people who these past three years have shared bread around a table with him, have prayed with him and slept next to him on dusty roadsides. And yes, they're the same people who hid with him when Jesus was arrested. And here they are, making before Thomas the most important announcement any of them have ever made. I imagine they probably had a fight about who got to be the one to tell Thomas when he came back into the room. And he's basically calling them liars. Thomas's doubt is opening a rift in the community of the disciples. Thomas is on one side insisting on having his own personal experience that he can verify and the disciples are on the other side pleading with him to trust the reliability of their testimony about the experience they had and what it means for him. He can't cross that chasm. He can't do it. But he's still there. And the disciples don't make him leave for eight days. This is the thing I find most remarkable about this story. Thomas doesn't believe what the other disciples believe. That's it, pure and simple. He just doesn't believe it. But Thomas is still a disciple. One of the things that we address in our confirmation class with our eighth graders is the very real fear that I detect in talking to many of them that their faith is not good enough. And they don't believe all the things that you have to believe in order to become an active member of the church. I don't know where they get that idea. I've heard it a lot in my years in ministry. I also know it's not restricted to 8th and ninth graders. Lots of adults stay away from church for the same reason. So let's do a little experiment here. If you're an active member of this church, or any church really, raise your hand. I want you guys down here, turn around and look at all the raised hands. All right. Now leave your hands up. Put them back up. Only lower your hand now if you got a B or better on the test that the church administers to prospective members to scrutinize their religious beliefs. <laughs> wow, that's pretty good. There's no test. Belief is part of discipleship. It's not the whole of discipleship. So here are the questions that we're going to ask these eighth graders who are making a profession of faith later on this morning. Let's see where we hear the word belief in these questions. 
trusting in the gracious mercy of God, do you turn from the ways of sin and renounce evil and its power in the world? Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and do you promise to be Christ's faithful disciple, to obey his word and show his love? Do you promise to share faithfully in the worship and work of this congregation, giving of yourself in every way, and do you promise to seek the fellowship of the church wherever you may be? Belief isn't really there. I mean, the closest you get to it is that word trust. It's the same word that the catechism used, and that's because belief is the, or or trust rather, is the better English translation of the Latin word credo, from which we get the word creed, as in the Apostles' Creed. Trust. There's a lot of diversity of belief among the disciples of the church who trust in Jesus Christ and who strive to show his love and obey his word, just as there was a lot of diversity of belief in that church of 11 gathered in a Jerusalem upper room where Jesus himself had appeared just eight days earlier. There's so much diversity that one of the disciples there doesn't even believe that the thing happened. And yet there he is, a disciple just like the rest of them. Well, you knew belief was going to get the last word, right? This is church. That's what we're going for. I mean, doubt can be healthy. Doubt can be clarifying. Questions are vital. But so are answers. And the church trusts that in the risen Jesus, we've been given some answers. After all, when he eventually appears to Thomas... Jesus orders him to stop doubting and to believe. I wonder, though, if it's not really about doubting versus believing. I wonder if it's really more about doubting well versus doubting poorly. I think doubting poorly is doubt as an unrelenting posture that is unwilling to learn how to trust. Question everything is as unfruitful a creed as it is implausible. You can't do it. The 5th century bishop, St. Augustine, suggested that in order for faith to be vital, it always needed to be faith-seeking understanding. I'm simply suggesting that doubt be subjected to the same criteria. That if your doubt is not seeking understanding, then it's just seeking more doubt. So here's Jesus back a second time, eight days later, picking out Thomas repeating back to him word for word the things that Thomas said he would need as a criteria for belief. Put your finger here, look at my hands, put your hand in my side, and look at this. Doubting Thomas gets the last word in this story. And that word is my Lord and my God. That's a big claim. That's the first time that somebody makes a claim about Jesus using language that Previous to that, the Bible had only used to refer to the God of Israel, and here it is on Thomas's lips, the most dramatic confession of faith in all the Gospels from doubting Thomas. And after insisting on physical touch as the thing he would require to believe, when he's finally invited, Thomas doesn't lay a hand on Jesus. One commentator sums it up like this, Thomas was not airing his doubts for the sake of mental acrobatics. He doubted in order to become sure. And when he did, his surrender to certainty was complete. So may our surrender to certainty, when it finds us, be as complete as doubting Thomas. Amen.